This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is brought to you by the Amazon original series Bosch. Detective Harry Bosch is back on the new season of Bosch, based on the best-selling novels by Michael Connelly. Stream the new season now on Amazon Prime Video. This episode is also sponsored by Roku and HBO Now. Roku players offer the biggest selection of streaming channels like HBO Now. Learn more about Roku players and try HBO Now free for one month by going to roku.com slash TV talk. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. This week we're joined by Joel Fields and Joe Weisberg, showrunners of The Americans, for an in-depth conversation on the show ahead of its upcoming fourth season. That's coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. I'm here as usual with TV critic Matt Zoller Seitz, and we're very excited to have the people behind one of our favorite shows on TV right now, Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields, showrunners of The Americans. Gene is dead? Oh, no, 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 no. No, I didn't, I didn't agree to this. I don't want this. Martha. How could you do that? No, no, stay away. So when the when the Americans first came out, I remember a lot of people compared it to Homeland because that was the easy comparison to make. And since then, we've seen just so many think pieces that compare it in terms of telling readers the Americans is so much better than Homeland. This is why you should be watching it because this is a way of getting people to watch the show who aren't already watching it. How do you feel about this comparison? Do you resent it at all that it's constantly pitted against this other show that is super popular? I really enjoy Homeland, and I thought this last season was their best ever, and that's not to put down the other seasons. I thought it was amazing that in a later season, they they elevated the show so much. So mm-hmm. uh, I see Matt has something to say. No, I just... Uh, <laughs> I, I, Homeland's one of those shows, like for me, like The Walking Dead, where I'll just take your word for it that it's great again. <laughs> oh, no. oh, this last yeah. season, Matt, give it, give it a couple episodes. It was, anyway, right. but what I want to say is, to me, I get the surface comparison because they're both shows about spies but they're in my view completely different genres so i can love homeland but homeland is uh much more a spy show in kind of the born supremacy sense or in the james bond tom clancy yeah whereas this is more about character it's more jean le carré and it it, to me it's they they happen to be spies but uh, what we were aspiring to explore was something more along the lines of The Wire, uh, Breaking Bad, mm-hmm. The Sopranos, stuff where uh, we're dealing with character stories and they and they happen to be in that world. But one one really doesn't relate to the other in my head. Yeah, I think if like the Americans had been canceled, I'd be like wandering the streets, pushing a shopping cart with all my belongings and seething with resentment over Homeland. But as it's <laughs> turned out, you know, we've done great and there's really been a great space for both shows. I get I I am sort of torn between understanding that um, Emmys don't necessarily correlate to quality and being really really angry that you guys haven't won a ton of them, and I wonder how you feel about that. I mean, it must be frustrating. I mean, I, I don't want you to name names or anything, but there are a lot of shows that are not nearly as good as your show that have gotten a lot more acclaim. 
You know, it's, we honestly don't get very worked up about this. I mean, the truth yeah. is we've won a lot of other things. Yeah. And there are a lot of really, really good shows that don't win anything. You know, and we've won a lot of True. stuff. So we've mostly just been pretty happy over in our little offices over in Guanas. I don't mean to say that it wouldn't be great. I mean, we would love it. So don't don't. It'd be get very, wrong. very nice. Any but... Emmy voters who are listening, we'd be <laughs> deeply appreciative. <laughs> completely space that could be made available on the shelves, we'd be thrilled. But uh, I, Joe's right. I mean, it, it's hard to go to work every day on this show that we love with this incredible cast, the people that we love, to have the kind of critical response that we have, to have all the people watch, not only watching it and digging it, but getting it, right? Really right. responding and plugged into exactly where our heads and hearts are at in terms of what we're trying to say. It's hard to do all that, have all that, have all the support from the network, have many other awards, and and then be resentful about not getting the Emmy. I feel like It'd we're... be very nice, but... I feel like we're failing the resentment part of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, speaking of... <laughs> it's Resentment Corner. It's a weekly, <laughs> weekly feature. That, so when people talk about the Americans, it's often framed as that show gets so much better with every season. Do you share that view of, of your show? <laughs> well, I'd say we share that hope. <laughs> every year at the beginning of the year, we share that hope. And and then you see how it goes. Yeah. But we do feel it's true. We think it has gotten better every season this so far, uh, including this fourth season, we think is better than the last. But we're starting, we're, we're getting a little nervous about next season, to, yeah. to tell right. the truth. <laughs> but, but the truth is, I think that nervousness is what drives us. Uh, you know, from the beginning, we talked about trying not to be bound by some idea of doing something great, which was undefinable, but rather to really just focus on what was exciting to us. And that that was definable. And each year we've sort of asked ourselves, what can we do next that'll be more exciting to us, that we'll be more excited about, that'll feel somewhat different but still be the same show? And uh, that's what we've pursued. One big thing we try to do is, is change it up. And we don't do it so much for the purpose of having surprises, but we do it for the purpose of not being repetitive and not doing the same things season after season. And it's a little scary because if you have a sort of way of telling your stories that's working, it's it's almost irresistibly tempting to keep telling the stories that way because it worked last season and you could sort of tell it the same way and do a little better job and then hopefully that'll work. And so we have to sort of, Joel and I have to sort of build each other's confidence. It's okay if we tell the stories different this season. That'll make it new. That'll make it fresh. We try to sort of jump off that cliff each new season. I've told you guys this before, but uh, when I when I heard uh, In the Air Tonight used in the pilot, <laughs> that's, that's when I stood up straight and said okay i'm clearly i'm gonna have to watch this show <laughs> because that's a that's a piece of music that's strongly identified on tv with the pilot of miami vice which is one of the greatest pilots of all time it's like well the show clearly is not lacking in nerve <laughs> um, but now that you're heading into if you go to season f uh five uh you're going to be in 1984 so maybe there could be a scene where they're they're actually watching the pilot of Miami Vice. Hey, that's, the song a, again. that's a good idea. Well, there was a we debated a lot about the use of that song in the pilot for that very reason. Yeah, and we ultimately just decided we we're going to make this show as this show, and and not worry about even other great things that came before. The sex on the show in the first season, you know, was such a big part of a lot of their spy missions, and I feel like the show has kind of moved away from that. Although we we still see sex happening, but it's a lot more in terms of character development like I love that scene in last season where Elizabeth is having sex with a hotel hotel manager and she gets turned on that was like such a surprise to me you know and I just love how it's used to kind of tell you more about these characters what informed your decisions in terms of how you present it I think there was 
you know, initially, like around the pilot, there was still the idea that the sex in the show might in some sense actually be a fun part of the show. Like, look at these characters and their crazy lives and all the things that they do, and there's even a sort of fantasy element to it. And I think part of the tonal shift in the show in general was that as Joel and I started working with these characters and these stories, it just didn't take long before we realized that if the show was going to have any sort of level of truth or authenticity to it, we couldn't tell these stories without all the darkness in all of that coming to the fore. There was just nowhere to go otherwise. And one of the first elements of that was the sexual element of these characters' lives, that it was just sad and scary and had incredible, incredible darkness to it. And as we started unspooling those stories over the seasons, it, of course, that was all about all about character, and it sort of came in and out of the stories. You know, there were seasons where we told a lot of those stories, seasons where we told fewer of those stories, and I think that's going to be the, the same thing going forward. It might sort of pop in and out. An episode that was nominated for an Emmy last year, Do Male Robots Dream of Electric ah, Sheep. By the that, great Joshua Brand. Yeah. Phenomenal episode. And I wanted to use that to talk about how the show deals with death because I find that fascinating. It That episode to me really epitomizes how it deals with death and how it really makes you confront the deaths of even minor characters. Do you have children? Yes. This is what you do. Sometimes. By yourself. With my husband. Why? To make the world a better place. You think doing this to me will make the world a better place? I'm sorry, but it will. That's what evil people tell themselves when they do evil things. How do you think about this when you're writing and filming these scenes? We think a lot about consequences. And so death is a real consequence, obviously, of of their actions. Many people who are in the political sphere, get to experience fighting a war without being on the front lines to experience death. And uh, people who are in the citizen sphere get to experience what their nation does without actually seeing the direct consequences. But Philip and Elizabeth have to experience it and and have to live with it. And that's hard and heavy. So we, we want to show that. I think that's the other thing is what Joel says about Philip and Elizabeth is that it always has to come back to them. Whatever you're, whatever you're doing in the show and however interesting or dramatic it is, when you have a character who's only there for one episode and they die, whether it's the woman in that episode or whether it's Annalise, who you knew a little bit longer, getting bent up and put mm-hmm. into a suitcase, as upsetting that is, it's really how it lands on Philip and Elizabeth that, that drives the story. So in that episode, when the Lois Smith character accuses Elizabeth of being evil, and you see how that lands on her. That's that's what the episode is really that about. Remind, that reminded me of the episode of The Sopranos where li, where um, Carmela goes to therapy, and the therapist tells her, uh, "Really, all your problems come from the fact that you're you're married to a murderous psychopath." <laughs> and but do you uh, want to change that? Yeah, and and you can't say, you know, I I have no control over what you do next, but I do know that you can't go forward in this life without saying that you weren't warned. And I see that it, particularly in the face of Philip. And I've already made this, you know, 
joke, and I kind of it's a kind of a wish. It's not even a joke. I think if you could watch Matthew Reese's face in slow motion over the course of three seasons and four episodes, which I've seen, you would see his soul imploding. You would see his soul imploding <laughs> in slow motion. That character, and it's so, and like he doesn't even know that it's happening. And that's that's one of the things that's that's most fascinating to me about the show, and what separates it from a lot of psychologically driven dramas on the air post Sopranos is. It's as psychologically driven as any other kind of premium cable sort of show, but the characters aren't aware of themselves as psychological constructs, and the show doesn't seem aware of them that way. Obviously, you are, and the writers are, the directors are, the actors are, but the show is not aware in the way that most TV is aware. I mean, do you know what I'm yes, saying? Yes, we, we, oh, yeah. we have this running joke in with our writing staff because we talk a lot about how these characters are not aware. We use exactly that terminology. We'll be working on a script and we'll bring in one of the writers and we'll sit down with him or her and we'll talk for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour, two hours about a single scene and all of the dense thoughts and emotions that are colliding back and forth between the characters. And then once we really pin it down, we'll say, just remember, they're unaware of any of this and can't express it. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. really it's a great challenge in writing the show and in filming the show because A, they're unaware. B, they keep everything secret. So even the things they know, they really can't talk about to anybody. And then you get into a situation where when you're filming scenes between these people, if you miss a physical, a facial expression, you might miss the whole scene. So it can get really tricky. We'll be watching something in that any room and we'll go, oh, no. And we'll say to that editor, wait, do you have that, you know, twitch that was supposed to be there or, or else the whole scene might not make sense? And, and, and we've actually just recently, we actually excised a chunk of a scene because a twitch wasn't there. Oh. And we just thought, well, it's not going to play. We're going to have to save that character move for later because it wow. just wasn't caught in the right way. Before we move on, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is brought to you by Amazon's original series, Bosch, which has just returned for an all-new season. Based on Michael Connelly's best-selling novels, Harry Bosch, the tenacious LAPD homicide detective, is back on the job after an involuntary leave of absence. His first case back may prove his biggest challenge yet, as he follows a dangerous trail of corruption and collusion, one that uncovers the dark side of the police department and threatens Bosch's relentless pursuit of truth. Stream the new season of Bosch now on Amazon Prime Video and listen to the companion podcast, A Fine Mist of Blood, on SoundCloud or Stitcher. A fan of the show this morning on Twitter talked about Matthew Reese's performance. He said, you would see his eyebrows going from this, and he drew two dashes that were flat, like horizontal, to this, and they were kind of making a V-shape. <laughs> <laughs> like the weight of the world is yeah. bearing down on his eyebrows. <laughs> well, the thing is, by the way, Elizabeth is changing too. Yeah. But, you know, relative to her, he's changing fast. But really, he's changing slowly. And she's changing extremely slowly. I get the sense of something building up in her. Yeah. In the new season, you feel her soften a little bit more. There's a dream sequence where I was like, oh my God, she has feelings that I didn't like, she's thinking things I didn't think she was thinking, and that was really amazing to see. It always bears um, re remembering that she's a, she's a rape survivor. That's one of the very first things that we learn about her. Well, I often feel that we're a little bit at odds with 
perhaps some significant section of the audience in terms of how they see that character. There's often a significant percentage of the audience that just sees her, you know, for example, as cold right. or as just an ideologue. And our, our perception of her is generally uh, much more complex than that. I know that there are people in the audience who also have a much more complex view of her, but there are those who see her more simplistically. Uh, and to us, all those things about her, whether it's her steadfastness in terms of her devotion to the motherland, which has elements of ideologue in it, but also has elements of being true to the things she believes in, and also has elements of having a deeply thought out conviction to it. So it has all those elements to it. And the seeing her as cold is, is not something we believe in. I think for me, rewatching the the seasons changed my view of her greatly. I think this is a type of show that you have so much to gain by rewatching it. It completely changes your view of her character. So what was that process like with casting uh, Philip and Elizabeth together? Obviously, we know that Carrie Russell and Matthew Reese are together now. Did you see that chemistry when you were casting them? Was that something you, you were looking for? Or because they were not really a a married couple who was so um, in love with each other at the beginning, was that something you were looking for? Well, you know, he was supposed to be always in love with her. Right. And so there there was supposed to be a certain kind of chemistry between them. Leslie Feldman, uh, who was the casting director at DreamWorks, had seen Matthew in a play. Uh, and it was sort of her initial idea that he would really be great for this role. And a bunch of us started, you know, looking at his reels, and, and I went to see his play, and, and he came in and, and auditioned a couple times, and then there was a chemistry read with Carrie, and uh, they were pretty great together. I, I feel funny using the word chemistry because, as you're saying, it, it wasn't supposed to be a typical chemistry, mm-hmm. but there was a lot of kind of interesting electricity between them, and I remember we used to tell the story a lot of the, the a scene that they read where... Uh, she slapped him in the face and he just sort of took it and kind of stared at her. You know, it sounds like a sort of cliche moment, but in fact, there was something really uh, wonderful because if you think of how odd that relationship was in that pilot where he has all these feelings for her that aren't quite reciprocated and yet they've been together a very long time. So there is something deep and emotional between them. Uh, it was in that moment in a lot of great ways. That- I was I, I visited the set a couple of years ago. I guess it was the last time I was there and I interviewed Matthew and he uh, I was talking to him about the different co- his different co-stars, and as he was talking about Carrie, he complimented her like five times more than every, anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and like a degree of animation that I it kind of jumped out at me. And then I got out of there and I thought like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so Carrie Russell is obviously also pregnant this season. I'm curious how you dealt with that in terms of just the, you know, how you film certain scenes, how you work around that. So we had the rap party last night, and every year at the rap party they put together a gag reel of funny gaffes and moments, and they did a great series on uh, different ways that the baby bump was hidden. They did <laughs> cuts of her with groceries, cuts of her with a laundry basket, cuts of her with more groceries, coats, lots of coats. Uh, it, you know, first of all, it's just kind of happy news that you work around, right? and it's not uncommon to work around that. And uh, we had, I'd say, about half a season of not having to deal with it and then half a season of having to deal with it through uh, some CGI and some coats. She's chasing guys down the street while carrying a laundry basket. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, if you watch it with that in mind, you'll be like, oh, wearing a coat again. (laughs) Coat in the bedroom. Coat in the bathroom. One one (laughs) trick is if if you do, we hope, two or three CGI shots per episode, then we hope the audience will think less about the coat. 
the laundry basket. I was going to ask you about that. You've got, uh, it, it seemed to me that you've got more, uh, quote-unquote, location shooting in Washington, where, by which I mean you see the White House or the Washington Monument or something in the background. It's like, I think that might be Fort Greene Park. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Computers have, have made it m- easier to transport the actors. There, We actually go to Moscow this year uh, via some green screen. On the Upper West Side. On the, okay. I was wondering yeah. about that. So I wanted to ask a little bit about your, your process. Every TV writer's room is different, and I'm how does yours work? Well, Joel was alluding earlier to the fact that uh, uh, although we do spend some time with the entire team in a writer's room uh, breaking story and, and talking through things, a lot of the process on the individual script is we'll have two writers at a time. We'll be working on two scripts at a time. We'll have two writers who come in to a sort of mini room with me and Joel where we break uh, those two stories together. What would you say that we'd spend maybe two well, to three weeks going through that? It's such a multi-part process. We, uh, you know, we start by just walking, talking, sitting and making notes and then creating one singular document between Joe and myself that for a long time we called uh, the master document. That was our haughty title for it. Now we're creating a new one. <laughs> Equally grandiose title. It's now called the final the document. The final document. As we approach the end of the series. <laughs> yeah, so, Very um, menacing. Yes. <laughs> and in, and in there, we have each storyline, each character, and all of our ideas that we kind of assemble into a rough order. What's happened in the last couple seasons is we'll come in at the beginning, sit down with the writers in, in a conference room, and take several weeks where we present those ideas, talk about them, pitch on them, then we'll go and refine that document. And then once we start actually writing episodes, we bring in, as Joe said, two writers at a time. So we'll do episodes three and four together because so many of the stories cross over and often the end of one becomes the beginning of another. It's all very fluid. And then we'll usually grab that document and sometimes there'll be enough pieces in it just to to have the scenes for the episodes. And at other times, there'll be two sentences in it that we say, wow, there's so much in these two sentences, it's going to cover these two episodes, and there's a lot of story to break. And once that chunk of scripted story seems to be on its feet, we'll bring in the next two, and and on we go. I wondered uh, what kind of mysterious shorthand you have for this particular show to to keep all the story beats straight, to keep all the ideas straight. The Museum of the Moving Image had this exhibit last year of the of stuff from Mad Men, and they had a recreation of the writer's room with the note cards, and they had names of characters and the vertical line and the horizontal line across the top. It was each episode, and it was, you know, the note card was a word or phrase that expressed where the character was at in a very general sense, and it was this crazy poetic stuff. It was like tsunami a broken teacup, <laughs> ennui, and it was like, what is this? <laughs> we don't have that. <laughs> we should we should do that. Yeah, I though. like that. That sounds fun. I like that. I, yeah. th- I think the closest thing we have is we have this master document. We have our collective memories, and then sometimes sometimes we'll hit a patch of say you know four episodes in a row where a specific character like Paige is going through something during four episodes, a four episode run, where suddenly it becomes hard to track where she is emotionally and yet crucial. You have to know where she is emotionally in each scene as it develops or the whole thing isn't going to make sense. And then we'll actually bring a writer in and say, do a tracking document where you put every scene from all four of these episodes and you track where she is emotionally in each scene. This is one of the benefits of being ahead. So that's another one of our tricks. You talk about the writer's room. We're usually six scripts ahead. 
This helps with production. Of when you sh- of what you're shooting? Of what we're shooting. So this helps with production, but this also is enormously helpful for us creatively because we're always in a position where we can go back, rewrite, and refine and, and have the thing feel much more of a piece. Could I return just for a second to this idea of emotional continuity for the characters? Sure. Because one of the things that I have always wondered is um, there's two levels of emotion to the performances. There's what we see the audience knowing them, and what the person in the room sees. And so they might be deceiving the person or people in the room with them, but they can't deceive us because we need to know what they're feeling. Even if we don't know what they're thinking, we have to know what they're feeling. This is hard enough on a show where people do (laughs) one thing and that's what they do and they're not keeping all these secrets. But on this show, they're often lying about who they are, lying about what they're doing. And sometimes the lie about who they are and what they're doing are different lies. And there was a moment in, I guess, episode four, and I'll try to be vague here, but Martha is at dinner with a coworker, and she's describing her situation with Clark, a.k.a. Philip, as I'm seeing a married man, <laughs> which is almost made my brain hurt when I was thinking about, like, what, where the hell is she getting <laughs> true, that? Not yes. true. And it, but it sort true of is. What it is true. not true. It is nonsensical and true and not true <laughs> all at the same time. Isn't that great? Well, uh, it's funny. You, it, it's, it's a great question. It just reminds me that Allison once came into our offices to talk about some character stuff, and she had her script. And uh, I said, what's on your script? And she started flipping through the opening pages, which is where the set breakdown is and the cast breakdown is. And all through, there was just all this scrawl. It looked like a beautiful mind. And <laughs> she said, this is my character tracking for the episode. So there's part of your answer. The actors take this stuff very seriously. They all arrive extremely prepared. They've thought through these things. And when necessary, we'll talk it through with them. Uh, and, you and, know, most of them have had nervous breakdowns during the run of the show. <laughs> <laughs> but then there's also, as we talk to them, we sometimes ask them that very question, and when it gets incredibly complicated, I think one of the things they look for is the simple truth, because the other stuff that we have in our heads as writers, one hopes, is going to vibrate there through the storytelling, but really characters are feeling what they're feeling or are trying to get what they're trying to get. Have right. you ever thought about doing a bottle episode, which I would just love to follow one character for a full episode of- I don't know if you've ever... Uh, boy, you know, I think The Fly was one of my all-time favorite episodes of television on Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't it called The Fly? It was, it was Fly. Just Fly. fly. Oh, so good. Yeah. We haven't. I think if we did one, it would be by accident. Uh, you know, in the old world of 22 episodes a year... You would write your bottle episode. There would always be a hostage siege at the radio station or wherever <laughs> the office happened to be because you could shoot it in one day fewer and you were all in your standing sets. You could save you know, a chunk of change midway through your season and you'd just reverse engineer a story to make it work. Uh, but we're more likely just to write the stories that we're writing and then figure out how to produce them. Before we move on, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Roku and HBO Now. Roku players give you the biggest selection of streaming channels like HBO Now, plus innovative features like voice search, unbiased search results, and private listening via the Roku remote or your mobile app. With HBO Now, you get all of HBO, including every season, every episode of HBO's addictive original series, past and present, plus the biggest and latest movies before any other streaming service. No TV package required. And it's available on Roku players. Roku gives you TV the way you want it. Watch what you love, including HBO Now. Try it free for one month. Visit roku.com slash tv talk. 
That's R-O-K-U dot com slash T-V-T-A-L-K to learn more about Roku players and to get your one-month free HBO Now trial. Joe, you once said um, about how the show makes you feel is that you, it makes you feel that maybe the enemy is as human as you are. And I'm curious how much resonance you hope this show has in terms of contemporary crises, in terms of you know, our current enemy being the Middle East. Do you hope people think about it in terms of, you know, what's happening in the world today? Yeah, I mean, as much as I am nervous about the idea of a TV show being pedantic, I think, you know, starting out, I was, I liked the idea that a sort of central theme of the show was that here's the enemy, and guess what? They're just like you. And when the show started out, uh, things were pretty peaceful, between the U.S. and Russia, so that seemed like a good and easy time to sell that idea. Um, (laughs) And lo and behold, just a couple of years later, things had really heated up between the U.S. and Russia. And look, I think at the end of the day, it's probably a good sign for a drama that not that many people are so interested in the idea behind it. I'm making air quotes if you're listening right now. You know, that's not not supposed to be what jumps out out anyway. Uh, But... You know, you don't really expect people to invest in the greater ideas or greater themes, but that was always something that, uh, to me, seemed to sort of animate the the Mm -hmm. show. Right, because the show is essentially, you know, more about the relationships and the the marriage and not necessarily about the spy stuff. This is something you've talked about. And I'd love to talk a little bit about Philip and Elizabeth. They have such huge philosophical differences, and what do you see about them that attracts them to one another over and over again. It's funny, as I hear you say that, I just think, isn't that any marriage or any relationship? You've got two different individuals. They have philosophical differences. They have personal differences. Their heads are literally and in different places. And the challenge of marriage is to figure out how to be together. Um, and do something. And do something. Stay married, raise kids, accomplish the things you have to accomplish in the world. It happens for Philip and Elizabeth to include subverting the enemy. That's one thing they have to do <laughs> right. that your average marriage doesn't have to do. <laughs> uh, before I got married, my father was a rabbi, and he married us. And we had a very fun but a little bit awkward pre-meeting with him where he said, I have a pre-meeting with all the couples. It's a lot of <laughs> you guys. but I'm gonna, You're not getting said, out of it. Yeah, you're not getting yeah. out of it. But he said, one thing I say to all couples is that you've been living in the me world and you're leaving the me world and now you're going to be living in the we world. And really, that's all you need to know. And that may be all you need to know, but that's a hell of a thing. You see that really strongly manifested in those moments when Philip and Elizabeth talk about long-term what they're going to do. And Philip always has a temptation to say, let's get out of this business, let's leave the country, let's go back to Russia, let's go somewhere else. And she wants to stay. But you can see that she's entertaining the possibilities that he's raising. And in the end, he always gives in and they stay. So he's doing what she wants. Look, maybe this is an opportunity. Maybe this is the perfect time for us just to think about living the life we've been living, but just really living it. Just being us. What are you talking about? I'm saying we might be blown, and I'm saying if they are watching us, we can't kill Timoshev. I'm also saying we are Philip and Elizabeth Jennings. We have been for a very long time. So why don't we get ahead of this, and why don't we make the first move and offer ourselves to them? 
We could get a lot of money, three million for Timoshev, three million for us. We just get relocated, take the good life, and be happy. Are you joking? Is this a joke? No. You want to betray our country? Well, after everything we've done, I don't think it's such a betrayal. Defecting to America? America's not so bad. Do you think very consciously about having Philip and Elizabeth at odds on a consistent basis? Uh, No. It's not necessary for them to always be at odds. And I think, in fact, there are a lot of ways in season three when they're really getting along. Even though they're at odds in certain things, they also seem to be finding a a kind of balance. And Mm -hmm. I think in season four, in a funny way, we don't want to spoil season four. And in a funny (laughs) way, on this show, it can be a spoiler how Philip and Elizabeth are getting along. But I think there's some interesting interesting up and downs. And I think it, it, it can't be overlooked that they've been together almost 20 years at this point. And they've raised two kids. And Boy, there are a lot of problems, and you could certainly take issues with how they've raised those kids. On the other hand, they are who they are, and they're in the circumstances they're in, and they found themselves in certain circumstances, and they have survived. Believe it or not, I think there are a lot of good things there, too. There's a touch of this family that slays together stays together <laughs> to, to the two of them. That's right. Well, it, it, maybe the real truth is that the family that stays together stays together. Right. And at the end of the uh-huh. day... <laughs> well, that's but that's it. Uh, uh, through all their challenges, through through all the conflicts, the the tougher the challenges, the more that pulls at them to separate them. Yeah, the more impressive and yeah. powerful and and moving it is that they wind up staying together. Yeah. And I think they love each other. Yeah. I really do. And I, I think that's a, a change from the pilot when it felt like more of a one way street, or the, or the quality of the love feels a little more equal than it did. I'd love to talk about Paige a little bit because. Teens on television can often be so annoying, especially when they're on adult shows. They're not so fully developed. And Paige has been such a refreshingly complex character. How early on did you know that you were going to make her such a pivotal part of the show? I think we always knew that the unfolding of her finding out the truth and what that would create for the family would be a central part of this show. I don't think we quite knew that it would create, that it would take up this much space in the show. Doesn't right, here's the thing right? that, the thing that occurs to me is I don't know what we would have done if Holly Taylor right. had not blossomed into such a brilliant young actress. That's right? what people said about Mad Men, too, with Sally, that they really created that Yeah, role Kiernan because, Shipka was yeah. so good. That's, but we were, uh, Matthew Weiner said that, that if she wasn't so great, that character would not have been so important. But, uh, but we, but uh, I don't know what his process was there, but this was the direction we were going. Mm-hmm. So God help us had she not have been. <laughs> That's what I mean. When I say right, I don't right. know what we would have done, I, I, I literally don't know what we would have done. <laughs> right. Pivot. Big pivot. Yeah. <laughs> back, to, back to something you were saying, though. This, this idea of the word consequences keeps coming up in this podcast. I know that's something that anybody who tells a dramatic story has to worry about. You have this great episode, Stinger. Stingers? Stingers. Stingers. Yeah. My favorite episode from Thank last you. season. And you were talking about the ramifications of Paige knowing what her parents do for a living. I knew that was going to be important, but I did not expect for it to be the dominant story of the first four episodes of this new season. But as a parent myself, it, it seems only logical. That it would be. <laughs> um, were you ever resentful of how much acreage this story is taking up? Do you ever wish you could go back and delay it? Take it back. We almost didn't do it. We almost didn't do it. Yeah. Yeah, We almost didn't do it. We almost felt that it shouldn't take up the beginning of this season. 
and, and we actually broke an initial beginning of the season where it didn't take up that acreage. It seemed like it was taking over too much. On the other hand, once we decided to do it, it, it was far from resenting it. It felt like rocket fuel for us from a story standpoint. There was so much to follow for these characters on the heels of last season. Is there anything that you do look back on and wish you had done a little differently? I I had read that Amador's death was maybe one thing you would wish you had earned his death a little bit more before you killed him. How much time do we have? <laughs> I, could, I could just keep going. I don't know. <laughs> well, well, you know I All think... we do is look back and wish we had done things differently. There's something, you know, in that, in that first season, we're sort of finding the show. And I think we felt by the second season, we found how we wanted to do the show more. So probably if we could go back, we'd probably do the first season more like the second season. Maybe also that would be a terrible mistake. So it's, I don't know, literally if we do it. Right. Right. Well, I also have no desire to go and remake the first season. Since we almost died (laughs) making the first season? No, it's a good good thing. That was was rough. But that's right, because who knows? We needed our process to, to to find where the show wanted to be. But... Uh, you know, you talk about Amador. I think there's no question if we were to, even if we were to do exactly that same storyline again, we would have taken much more time getting to know that character and building to that story than we did. Can you tell me about the physical space where the show is shot? The the studio? Yeah. It's a warehouse, right? It's a warehouse. It's on the banks of the beautiful, super fun cleanup site at the Guanas Canal. <laughs> and uh, we have a lot of standing sets this season, which has been a good thing for our crew and our cast. And our writer's office is right across the street from our FBI and uh, Jennings house. But in order to get to the Residentura or the travel agency, we have to traverse the Guanas Canal. We've requested that the studio consider some sort of tram system or some sort of (laughs) canoes for us, but apparently that is not affordable. There's an auto body shop next door, and about every two weeks, we all start getting headaches, and then we realize that it's the the horrible stench the fumes, of paint yeah. fumes, and we oh, have to close wow. all the windows. And you there are about six ways we might be getting poisoned. <laughs> yeah, you don't share the space with any other production. No, no, so it's no like there's no other production that would want to come share. No, our it's space. Yeah, but yeah, it's an un, it's, a, <laughs> it's an unusual sort of setup over there, but it's actually pretty nice. We're isolated and private and and nice. I mean, it's kind of it's a low rent it's a low rent studio. But, but the it, but the produ- but we have the production offices are are there yeah. and the editing facility is there. The only thing that we can't do there is mix sound and color correct. When I visited, it almost felt like a theater. Well, <laughs> you had, you know, the writers were sitting there having conferences over in the corner next to folded bits of set yes. and stuff. Yeah. Hey, yeah. kids, let's make a show. Yeah. 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 And there's also a, just a great sense among everybody who's working on the show. Uh, we're excited to get ideas from anybody. And it's a very, it's a very open environment and a very collaborative, fun environment. So as dark as the material might be, the process tends to be uh, pretty fun. Are there ever moments when the actors will come to you and say, hey, I really don't think that this this is a great move for my character? Yeah, it doesn't happen a lot, but it happens sometimes. Well, I, I can think of a couple big examples. Last season, when we first delivered the scripts on that Kemi storyline, mm. Matthew struggled. And we start, we had a lot of conversations about it. And, and then there was a moment where the conversation stopped. And I remember we went up to him and said, well, you know, you've stopped asking us about this. Uh, you know, we want to make sure the communication's good. And he he said, no, no, it suddenly struck me. 
it's supposed to make me, Matthew, uncomfortable. <laughs> I get it now. <laughs> it's supposed to be uncomfortable. I get it. No problem. And uh, and and we talked a fair amount with Carrie about uh, what we what we discussed here before. We talked to Carrie about the question of is this an act of love and positive mothering in Elizabeth's own way towards Paige in season three, or or was it something colder? And that was something we really spent a lot of time talking about with her. Not in the sense of her saying, well, I don't think my character would do this, but to make sure that that we were all on the same, oh God, I'm, you said it earlier, now I'm going to say it, that we were all on the same page in terms of how that relationship was playing out. Well, you mentioned Kimmy, which was one of the most uncomfortable for everyone watching it, but I was so impressed by how, how you handled it because you made it feel uncomfortable, which again was the point. I, I read that Kimmy is coming back Maybe this back. season. Yes. Are we going to be thrust back into that type of situation with her? Well, we're not looking to retread the same thing. Yeah. And you know, one of the challenges for us with the show is we imagine a whole life going on for these characters and we pick and choose what scenes we're showing. But to us, Philip is still meeting with Kimmy once a week, once every two weeks and picking up that tape from her father's briefcase. And Oh, right. Right? He's still got to do that. Her dad's still on that Afghan task force. That tape's still very important. So it's challenging because we don't want to show every one of those scenes over and over and over again. But in our world, that's still living. So all of those relationships are ongoing to us and we'll return to them. We'll return to them when something is happening that is of sufficient dramatic interest that it makes sense for us to show it. And that might be in the next six months of their lives or the next year or two years later. And in a way, there's a certain pressure of, well, you had this great storyline next season. You can't drop it. And in, in fact, we get tweets and, and complaints how don't drop the Kimmy storyline. And we try to not feel pressure. It's hard. We try not to feel pressured like that and to be patient and to wait. And when we feel that something is organically happening, then we'll come back. And there's a weirdness to that because organically happening to a certain degree, well, that is from our brains. But on the other hand, our brains seem to produce something when it feels organically mm-hmm. right in the lives of these characters that something true would next develop. How does the close scrutiny of the audience in the age of social media affect the decisions you make as storytellers? Well, we talk about this a lot that in, in the first couple seasons when we were writing at the same time that the show was airing, we read all the recaps, we read all the tweets, we listened to people, and it did affect us. But we found it helpful. I mean, it was a lot of very thoughtful analysis. We would read the things, we would run it up against what our own thinking process was, and it was like having more notes. I mean, we used it and it gave us ideas. But the last couple seasons, last season we were almost done, and this season completely done writing by the time anything is coming up. So except for sort of longer-term stuff, it's not, it's not useful. It's still fun to read. But it is still useful in terms of the longer-term stuff right. because it sparks conversation. And uh, Again, people are experiencing the show at such a rich level and writing about it at such a rich level. Uh, I think I've said before, just the, the term recap seems off to me because you, people yeah. say they're, they're publishing their recap of an episode and then there's a 10-page thoughtful, <laughs> rich analysis of every character move that we had debated in our writer's offices. It's really a great thing, and it is a great resource. I prefer. I always prefer the term overnight review. Yeah. Because yeah. I always picture you guys as, like, the playwrights, and your show has premiered, and you're waiting. Like, in the old days, you're 
waiting at a 24-hour coffee shop. <laughs> in this class, we're clicking refresh, the, refresh, you know, refresh. For the first yeah. edition of the Times and the Daily News and the Post yeah. and what have you. That's good. You know. We haven't known what to call it. I like that. No oh, review. review. That's it. Martha was one character who viewers saw as kind of comic relief early on. Is that how you viewed her? Because I was a little surprised no, to read that. we get that. very sensitive we, about any, yeah. any suggestion of comedy. <laughs> <laughs> How about I'll tragic work. relief? We were left if it's all we, tragic. We were, slap, we were slapping. <laughs> tragic relief. I've never heard that. <laughs> tragic relief. We were slapping our knees at the episode seven mix the other day over something that yeah, I'm sure no one else will find funny, but we were very amused. Well, there are some moments that, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call them funny, but like this season we see Philip and Elizabeth talking about uh, Henry's biology test and his cologne. When did you get Henry that cologne? I didn't. Who did then? I don't, I don't know. He must have bought it. It's disgusting. Yeah, I know. It's poisoning the whole upstairs. I had to open up all the windows. I told him deodorant is fine. He doesn't need cologne. He doesn't even shave. I know. Oh, that it, was funny. It's, that it's was very funny. funny stuff and they're the wearing show. wigs and makeup yeah. like, oh, as yeah. usual. There's yes. funny stuff in the show. Look, <laughs> we th- talk a lot about Martha's wedding. We think that was funny. It's not that there wasn't a lot of humor. That right, was verging that. on. That was verging on Fletch. That actually was funny, funny. That was not like, you know, stealth funny. That was actually just funny. That was a very scary sequence for us, actually, because we really, we we had wanted to do it. We knew we were writing towards it. But when it got to actually doing it, the danger of it being, verging on, the the difference between verging on Fletch and being Fletch is a big, big difference. Well, how does the, how does, you didn't want to go, you didn't want to go full Fletch. We didn't want to go full Fletch. We wanted it to feel real. How does the comedy of it or what's humorous in it not overwhelm the truth? That's why that was like the most tonally difficult sequence we ever had to do. You know what it is? It's the difference between Tootsie and Fletch. Yeah. Ah. That's good. Okay. I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> and we thought it came out just right. I mean, we were very happy we with it. We tootsied it up. <laughs> <laughs> you must be keenly aware that all it would take is a slight nudge to turn the show into camp. It's very fragile. It's very fragile. And sometimes the scene doesn't come out. And sometimes, by the way, if the disguises are off 15% and sometimes they are it fucks up the scene it's Inspector Clouseau all yeah, that's right that's right that's right and, and, it, and it's it, we were just talking about this the, the other day on some of these disguise issues one of the imperceptible ways it screws up the scene it's not just that it takes your eye off the scene and puts it on the disguise it's that it, that fact undermines the credulity of the whole scene. The purpose of their disguise is to be real. The purpose of their right. disguise is to disappear. And so if they're <laughs> right. wearing a wig that's too funny or something that's a little too distracting, it's not only wrong for the audience, it's wrong for them. So it's misfiring in two regards. Maybe or maybe not apropos of what we're talking about. Did you ever see, did you ever see the Val Kilmer version of The Saint? No. Well, he's supposedly he's a master of disguise, but every disguise in the movie is like what you're talking about, where he's so completely, ridiculously, ostentatiously nutty looking <laughs> that it defeats the purpose. Uh-huh. Like there's one disguise where he's got long, like hair extensions and a goatee and a suit, some kind of, and he's got an ornate cane with some kind of knob <laughs> handle, and he's tapping it in an airport waiting room and muttering to himself. And I'm thinking, I don't think that's how you blend in. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to know from both of you, when you think about the Americans, when somebody says the title of, of your show, what image do you see? I just honestly had the season three poster pop up. I really did. <laughs> the Something, season three poster. Yeah, which is, you know, the two of them with all the all the Soviet and various yeah. images on top of it, which is a real 
tribute to that poster. <laughs> you know, maybe this is me admitting that I don't have a visual mind, but what pops into my head is a feeling, not an image. Yeah. And the feeling is one of satisfaction. It's been a challenging experience, but it's been very, very gratifying. I also wanted, I was wondering how you view uh, the show in terms of, do you think of it as an optimistic or a pessimistic? Does it have an optimistic or pessimistic worldview? I, I, I know because we've talked about this a lot that we have fairly similar views on this, that even despite all the darkness and, and terrible things that happen, that we, we both think of it as uh, hopeful, that these are characters who, even with all the terrible things they do and all the, uh, all the sort of dismal things that have led them to this place, that Philip and Elizabeth themselves believe in the future that they do these things because they believe in the future and think there is a hopeful hopeful things in store and that that allows them to go forward and allows them to do these things, keeps either of them from being anything you would really describe as depressed or having given up uh, and that that sort of permeates the show and keeps it from being a, a total downer. In life as in drama, the third act resolution is only as gratifying as the second act complication. It's just a proportional relationship. And the fact that these characters continue to move forward is a very hopeful triumph, given everything they come up against. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being with us. This was an absolute pleasure. <laughs> thank Fun you. For us. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. it was great. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. And don't forget to check out Slate's companion podcast for the Americans, a behind-the-scenes analysis the morning after each episode, which also features Joe and Joel. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Thanks for listening. <laughs>